Good morning. I'm Julie Thatcher, and today's reading is Mark 11, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. It is truth. Your word is life. Your word is sweet and beautiful. Father, your word is a light unto our path. And your word is powerful. It accomplishes its purpose. Father, we pray that this morning we would encounter the power of your word. Not just the power of my voice, the power of my conviction, but of your word. Father, we need to we need to see the power of your word. We need to see it, see it heal families and bind wounds. We need to experience the power of your word in lifting our spirits out of the miry pit of enabling us to love you and love others beyond our natural abilities, of strengthening us so that we can be pillars of faithfulness when we feel like feathers blown about by the wind. Father, we pray that you would do this for the good of your church in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1998, my wife and I were living just outside of Chicago. And in 1998, the Chicago Bulls won their sixth NBA championship. I remember that because we were in Midway Airport sending my in-laws back home watching the fourth quarter of game six when they won over the Utah Jazz. Uh, It was an experience. Uh, When Michael Jordan hit that shot with 5.2 seconds left to go, the airport erupted. It was crazy cool. Everyone was going around high-fiving people. I'm high-fiving strangers. And A, I don't even really like NBA basketball. And B, I'm not a high-fiving kind of guy, especially when it's strangers. But you're just kind of swept up in the moment of it. As we drove back to our apartment through the city, the city was lit up and people were honking their horns more than normal. And it was just a cool experience. And a few days later, they had a victory parade and Jordan and Pippen and Phil Jackson were there and the crowds were there and the trophy was there. It was just a wonderful celebration of uh, an important victory. Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is, in essence, a victory parade. 
but it's very different than the kind of bulls, you know, victory parade of 1998, right? Matter of fact, it would be very different from the normal kind of triumphal entry slash victory parade that someone might experience in the first century. Those weren't uncommon things. People then had seen victory parades, triumphal entries of generals, of Caesars, of kings. But Jesus's was different. As a matter of fact, you might think, is this really a triumphal entry? I mean, he's riding a donkey. That's like putting Michael Jordan in the back of a broke-down VW Beetle for the victory parade. It doesn't compute. And why isn't Rome coming out in opposition to this? Why does Luke tell us that Jesus, as he approaches Jerusalem, weeps over it? What kind of triumphal entry is that? And, and where is the grand victory? Normally, victory parades follow a victory, right? Jesus precedes his victory of the cross and the grave. Jesus, in his triumphal entry, once again emphasizes that he's a different kind of king, and he's bringing a different kind of kingdom. And we need to understand that and embrace that as we pursue the kingdom and serve our king. This morning, there's a couple different layers of context that I think we need to consider before we get to asking application-type questions. Questions like, what do these events of the Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago have to say to us today? Before we get there, a couple layers of context. First, the biblical context. The events of Palm Sunday are, are really ripples of King David's reign. The people were shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. David reigned in Israel approximately a thousand years before the time of Jesus. He was God's anointed king who ushered in a golden age in Israel. He delivered Israel from their enemies. He established Jerusalem as the capital. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city, into the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence. And after he had won many battles over Israel's enemies, and he was given rest from battle, he said to God, God, it's not right that we're living in permanent houses and in cities, and you're still living in a temporary house, a tent. The tabernacle was a beautiful, grand, glorious tent, but it was still a tent. And David says, I want to build you a house. God replies, David, I know you want to build me a house. It's not for you to do that. Instead, I am going to build your house, the house of David, and your house and your kingdom will be established before me forever, and your throne will be established, God says to David, forever. Now, if a prophet was to come here to Bloomington and say, IU basketball is going to win a string of 20 consecutive Big Ten titles, you might think, 
well, he's obviously talking about women's basketball, right? <laughs> so, yeah, the man, yeah, they're doing awesome, okay? But you probably wouldn't think the new coach is going to come in and have such a great recruiting class, they're going to stay for 20 years and win 20 consecutive ties, because that's not possible in college basketball, right? What you would probably think is the new coach is going to be so great, he's going to continually recruit a new fantastic class that enables him to build this dynasty that stretches for 20 years. When David and the Israelites heard, your kingdom will be established forever, they weren't thinking David was going to be on the throne forever, but that there'd be this endless succession of Davidic kings that would stretch on forever. David's dynasty had an incredible run. It lasted 400 years, which is longer than we have been a nation. But 400 years is just short of forever. In the waning century of Israel's life as a nation, in the waning influence and faithfulness of the Davidic kings, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah came and began to talk about almost a, a reboot of the Davidic kingdom, a reboot of this throne that lasts forever, where God would raise up a, a righteous branch from David's line, where God would allow a, a shoot to come up from the root of Jesse, which is David's father. A, kind of a reboot of this dynasty. Certainly, the reboot of the dynasty, this new righteous branch, would bring deliverance from enemies. When Isaiah and Jeremiah were prophesying, the enemies that were harassing and threatening Israel were Assyria and Babylon. In Jesus' day, though, the enemies were Rome. The expectation was that this new Davidic king would bring deliverance from enemies. David delivered from the Philistines. The new king would deliver from Rome. That was the biblical context. Layer on top of that, the historical context, specifically the Maccabean Revolt. About 150 years before Jesus enters the scene, Israel was occupied by the Syrians. One Syrian king, Antiochus IV, as a part of his program, imposed ruthlessly Greek culture. He forced pagan worship. He outlawed Jewish customs like the Sabbath and circumcision, things that set Israel apart as Israel. He went into the temple and went where he was not allowed to go, into the Holy of Holies, and he erected an altar to Zeus and actually sacrificed a pig on the altar, defiling the temple. At this time, one specific priest, Mattathias, refused to offer the required sacrifices to the pagan kings and rose up in revolt with his sons against the Syrian king Antiochus IV. His sons were basically George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Che Guevara, and Storman Norman Schwarzkopf, kind of all rolled into one. They were revolutionaries, they were emancipators, they were freedom fighters, they were generals. One of them, Judas, Judas Maccabeus, gets the nickname 
the hammer. And he goes in and he defeats the Syrian forces, goes to the temple, and cleanses the temple. Another one of Mattathias' sons, Simon, finally succeeds in driving the last remnants of the Syrian army out about a decade after his brother Judas cleanses the temple and rides into Jerusalem in a triumphal entry with palm branches waving and people shouting. And when you consider that context, and we hear in Mark 11 and the other Gospels, the waving of the palms and the shouting of these chants, blessed is the coming kingdom of David. Those aren't just spiritual chants. They were nationalistic chants. The people wanted a warring king. But that's not Jesus. Not yet. The people wanted a king who would help free them from the shackles of Rome. But Jesus comes as a peaceful king. That's why just a few days later, the people would choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. Barabbas was a violent insurrectionist. But that's what the people wanted. Not a spiritual, gentle, humble king. Biblical context, historical context. Now we need the Jesus context. Because Jesus reshapes our understanding of everything. He redefines kingdom and he redefines kingship. First, he he shows that the kingdom of God doesn't come all at once. It comes in stages, progressively. With Jesus' person and his ministry, the kingdom of God had come. Not yet fully consummated, but already present in our world. The future tense of the prophets that pointed ahead and said, the king is coming, the kingdom is coming, becomes an emphatic present tense in Jesus. The kingdom is here, now. John the Baptist, the immediate forerunner before Jesus, said, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And then Jesus comes and he goes and he's, teaching about kingdom values and kingdom ethics and kingdom ways of living, and he's showing the power of the kingdom through his miracles and his healings. Most pointedly, at one time, the Pharisees are saying, Jesus must be casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, another name for the devil. Jesus says, that's not possible. That doesn't even make sense. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Why would the devil be casting out his legions of demons? No. It's by the power of God that I cast out demons. And if it's by the finger of God that I'm casting out demons, then that's proof to you. You should know that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom is here. It's now. Not yet fully consummated, but already present. And second, Jesus says that the kingdom, he shows that the kingdom is a gracious kingdom. Certainly it is true, absolutely perfectly true, to say that God is king over the universe, king over all he has made. 
he has created, and we, his creation, owe him our allegiance. He is sovereign, he is king. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking more specifically about Christ's redemptive reign. Not over all things, but over his people. It is a kingdom that originates not in creation, but in redemption. Grounded not in subjugation, but in salvation. Advancing not by judgment, not by blood and fire and the steel of swords and the machinations of warfare, but advancing through grace by extending the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus. Theologians refer to it often as the regnum gratia, the reign of grace. Not the reign of terror, the reign of grace. Grounded in Jesus' work of grace. Third, Jesus declares that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He redefines it as a spiritual kingdom. A few days after his triumphal entry, he's on trial before Pilate. And Pilate's asking him about what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he reigns over. And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was an earthly kingdom, uh, my followers would be rising up to defend me. But no, it's a spiritual kingdom. I think we need to pause here for a second because here in our context, 21st century Westerners, when we hear, oh, it's a spiritual kingdom, I have this fear that what we're hearing is is not really a real kingdom. It's our materialistic bent that when we hear things like spiritual, it means untrue or unreal. Fantasy like Hogwarts or Narnia or Middle Earth, and it's not that. Saying it's a spiritual kingdom just means it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. The earthly kingdom of Israel was merely a symbol, merely a shadow of the true spiritual kingdom of Christ. Out of the womb of the earthly kingdom, Israel, is born the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's spiritual because it it relates to spiritual goals. The kingdom of God is moving unstoppably towards a spiritual end, namely our salvation. The fact that it's a spiritual kingdom is shown by the kind of enemies Jesus comes to fight. He doesn't come to fight the Roman armies. He doesn't come to fight bad policy or corruption. He comes to fight and win against sin and death and the devil, our spiritual enemies. And it's spiritual because it's administered not by force, not by external means, but by the word And by the Spirit. That's why Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. That's not how the kingdom works. Fourth, Jesus redefines how the kingdom is eternal. He is king eternal. He will sit on the throne forever and ever. Not just the first in a long line of Davidic kings, but as the final king who reigns forever and ever. 
And over this redefined kingdom, Jesus reigns as a king who redefines kingship. Jesus' kingship is a humble kingship. Transportation says something about us, right? If you're a 30-year-old guy driving a minivan, I will assume you're a family guy. If you're a young person driving a 20-year-old Toyota Corolla, I'm going to guess you're a college student. If you're a middle-aged guy riding to church in your Harley, I'm going to assume midlife crisis. If you're a king riding a donkey, I'm going to assume Zechariah 9.9. Behold, he comes, your humble king riding on a donkey. Jesus redefines kingship. His kingship is a humble kingship, and it is a compassionate kingship. The prophet Isaiah, when he was talking about this future king, said he's gentle. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a flickering flame. Jesus himself says, Come to me, all you who are all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You want to know the heart of our king? It's gentle and lowly. Okay, those are the three contexts, biblical context, historical context, and the all-important Jesus context. And now what does that mean for us who follow Jesus? What do these events 2,000 years ago have to say to us now as we follow Jesus? First, to begin, I think we need to make sure that we know where to find the kingdom today. I asked you in the very beginning that we need, so we need to embrace the kingdom. It's a good idea to know who you're embracing and what you're embracing, right? And where to find it. You shouldn't go up and just embrace people or things you don't really know who they are. So how do we identify the kingdom? Where is it today? Where is the spirit of truth reigning? Where is the word of God obeyed? Where now is the spiritual kingdom of God? Where does God rule by his word and his spirit? Where do people willingly bow their knee and submit themselves to Christ the King? Begin to answer those questions and you can begin to identify where the kingdom of God is. And the answer is the church. We are the kingdom of God. The manifestation of the kingdom of God here and now. Have you ever gone on a hunt for your keys in the house and realized, oh, they're right there in my hand? Or gone looking for your glasses and realized, oh, they're right there on my nose? It's easy to miss what's right in front of you, and we can miss that the kingdom of God is right. Look around. For a minute, we are the kingdom people. We are the manifestation of the kingdom of God. 
It is so dangerous, so problematic when we look elsewhere and see the kingdom of God there or project kingdom worth on things like nations. Our nation's good. Our nation is important. We could be the best, most moral nation in the world where there is no immorality. Those things are things of the past. And we're still not the kingdom of God. We could be the most just society the world has ever known where there is no racism, there is no oppression, where there is no poverty. And we're still, as a nation, not the kingdom of God. The church, the church is the realm of God's redemptive activity. If I am honest, there are times when I watch the news, read the news, and hear about this scandal or that scandal within the church or the church kind of selling out in this way or selling out in that way, and I'm embarrassed to be a part of the church. Shame on me. The church is the kingdom of God. Oh, we muck it up real good sometimes. That's why the church is called to reform and always be reforming. But it's not something to be embarrassed about. It is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. Okay, so now that we see that we are the kingdom of God, what do we do Well, we act like it. We live like it. We live lives worthy of the kingdom, individually and corporately. We refuse to give in to things like the tribalism that so plagues the world outside the church. We refuse to give in to factionalism where we become red kingdom Christians or blue kingdom Christians or black kingdom Christians or white kingdom Christians or the masking faction and the anti-masking faction. No, we are called to unity. Jesus said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. We're called to unity, not uniformity. That's boring. Unity under the banner of Christ our King. And together we pursue transformation. Again, individually and corporately, we pursue the transformation of the Holy Spirit where the values of our, the kingdom and the qualities of our king are grown in us. Values like grace and mercy, humility, love. I love the hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal. The second verse of that great hymn says, It's not with swords loud clashing or stirring roll of drums, but with deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. Together we pursue transformation so that we can, in the power of the Spirit, do acts of deeds and mercy and advance the kingdom of God. And we remember always that it was by grace by grace that we entered the kingdom. And we stand ready as ambassadors of the kingdom to extend grace to others. Grace 
not judgment. Does that mean we don't talk about sin? No, absolutely we do. But we talk about it as a means to extend grace. The goal is always grace, not judgment, not condemnation, but extending grace. We preach, now is the time of the Lord's favor. Now is the year of his grace. Come and experience the goodness of our King. I'll end with this. If you haven't yet embraced the kingdom, the only requirement for entering the kingdom is opening yourself up to the king and accepting him in faith and love. It's not get your act together first and then come to the kingdom and maybe you'll be worthy. No, come as you are. Come as you are. Open yourself up to the king. On Ellis Island, uh, entering America, it says, bring me your poor, bring me your weary, bring me your huddled masses. It's great in theory. In reality, Jesus says, come to me, all you who were weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because my heart, my heart is gentle and lowly. There is no better king to swear your allegiance to, no better kingdom to pursue than his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we are very grateful for your word. It illuminates your kingdom It explains it because it is kind of beyond intuition. Father, we pray that you would fit us to be worthy kingdom citizens who are focused on our king and on modeling and living his way. Father, we thank you that you have risen to meet the shouts, Hosanna. You have saved us now. And we look forward to the completion of that redemption. We look forward to your glorious return when the kingdom is made perfect and complete. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.